For those of you who may be new, my name is Michael Mayo, and I'm one of the clergy here at Servants. And it's good to be with you all here this morning. Uh, In life, we like to know what to expect. We like to know what's going on. And it doesn't take long for that to show itself in our lives as people. If, If you're parents or if you've been around kids, you understand this very well. If you're with some, some young children and it's time to clean up and you just tell them, okay, it's time to go, it's not gonna go well. You have to tell them like at least five times, okay, in five minutes, we're gonna clean up and then leave. In two minutes, we're gonna clean up and then leave. In one minute, and it's because otherwise, they're gonna freak out. They don't like the unexpected changes. And they also don't like to not know what's going on. I I think it might be like around the age of three or something where kids start to ask why all the time. Please clean up your room. Why? Don't hit your brother. Why? Please don't eat sand. Why? We like to know what's about to happen and we like to know what is going on. We don't like to be in the dark. And starting here in chapter 17 for this passage and the passages that follow, Jesus says he's trying to help us understand what his kingdom is about. Because his kingdom is very unexpected. It's not how we would imagine it. And so he wants us to not be in the dark so we don't freak out when things aren't what we expect. Because if following Jesus is not what we expect, if we have the wrong expectations, we're liable to drop him and to leave him. So here, he wants us to know what to expect. And even though he's helping us with this, it's still challenging as we see the unexpected nature of his kingdom, where, his, where he is ruling, where he's setting everything right. And so the first challenge that we see in this passage is how Jesus challenges the social divisions of his day. Luke says that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem as he has been since chapter nine. But we get a key detail here in this very first verse and it's easy to miss, it's just a clause right at the very beginning. It says, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And that's an important detail. So we probably aren't like experts in ancient Near East geography, but here's a quick primer. So so Samaria was the region that was just north of Jerusalem. And way back in the day, just after King David and King Solomon, when all of Israel was united, the kingdom split. It fractured into north and into the the south. And the first ruler of the northern kingdom was concerned, hey, the uh, the temple in Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom. If people are going to go down there, then maybe their allegiances and loyalties will shift to the southern kingdom as well. And so what did he do? Of course, he built a temple in the northern kingdom, and he adorned it with two golden calves, which if you know the history of the Bible is probably not a good idea. And so this started this trend of these two nations that used to be one that shared a common history shaped by God's redemptive power slowly drifted apart. And with time, those divisions calcified. So much so that come Jesus' time, 
the, the Jewish people who lived in Judea, in the Jerusalem area, what the southern kingdom was, might look upon the folks from Samaria and not even consider them real Jews. Like that's how far the division had gone. And it was so bad that, that even though like both of these kingdoms had fallen over 600 years ago, hostilities were still fresh and violence would break out in between the Samaritans and the Jews. And we see that amongst Jesus' followers themselves. So earlier in Luke's gospel, as they start their journey to Jerusalem, they're going through a village in Samaria, and Jesus is rejected there, which that has happened before. It happened in Nazareth. He was rejected by a village. But only in this village in Samaria do James and John say, hey, Jesus, you should rain down fire upon them. And I think that's probably because they weren't too keen on the Samaritans. I think they might have had some hatred towards their brothers of theirs to the north or to the south since they were from Galilee. And so when Jesus is going through this region, it's a a big deal because it was such a, a big deal that oftentimes when people were traveling in that day, if you were to go from Jerusalem up to Galilee, in order to not go through Samaria, you would like do the other three sides of the rectangle just so you wouldn't have to go through this area. It it, it would be like if you were a hardcore Gator fan and you were making a road trip to Pensacola and you hate the Seminoles so much that you go all the way up to Atlanta and then down just so you don't have to deal with Tallahassee. Like that is what we're talking about here. Yet Jesus walks right through. He challenges the social divisions of of his day. And we see more of this idea of how he's challenging these divisions in the next verse where it says, as he entered the village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance. Jesus meets these lepers on the outskirts of the village because these men would not have been allowed to be in the village itself. They would not have been allowed to be around other people. They, they were considered unclean. In Jewish law, you can read about it in Leviticus 13 if, if, if you'd like. And if you're a kid, you can do that right now. You can just stop paying attention to anything I'm saying and just read your Bible. I did that all the time and it worked out great. If you're ever bored in church, which was me oftentimes, just open up your Bible, read. It'll probably be better than anything that I would say. If Father James or Mother Susan are preaching, probably not, but with me, it's probably fine. So there in Leviticus 13, it talks about this cleanliness laws. It identified things that were clean and unclean. If, if you touch something that was related to death or bore the marks of death, you were considered unclean. Now, this was not a sin. It was not evil or wrong. But in most cases, in order to become clean again, you'd have to go through a cleansing ritual in order for you to once again come into God's presence in the temple or be around other people. So these 10 men were unclean, but they had a chronic disease, so they had no hope of ever being clean. They had no hope of ever being around other people people in relationship. They had no hope of coming into the presence of God in the temple. And so how does Jesus respond to these people 
who society would have cast on the outskirts. Well, of course he heals them, but before that he does something else. It says that he sees him. He sees them. And when the Bible talks about seeing, oftentimes it's not like the you get a glimpse kind of notion. It's the like beholding. Jesus beheld them. He looked at them and saw them. It's easy for us to see people without seeing them, but Jesus saw these people on the margins for who they were, their whole being. And so as we see how Jesus is in these first few verses challenging the social divisions of his day, the question for us is who are the people in the course of our regular lives that we would rather not see? Who are the people that we would go out of our way so that they wouldn't be in our way? And I encourage you not to think yourself better than thinking yourself better than others. Because if you do, you'll only find that you're looking down on the sorts of people who look down on people. So we, we all have this tendency of feeling a tinge of disgust in other people. So as, as you scroll through your social media feed, as you watch the news, as you uh, interact with other people at work, who are those people that raise that kind of response? These are the kinds of people in Jesus' day that, that he saw. So Jesus challenged social divisions, and then he challenges the unclean gentlemen who have come before him asking for help. He tells them, go and show yourselves to the priests. Now, I, when I read this, I'm like, man, this, this is crazy town. This is like a wild thing to tell someone. Because priests, as part of their jobs, were like the health inspectors of their day. If you read in Leviticus 13, it talks about how if for any reason you became unclean, you had to go to a priest who would give you the stamp of approval saying you're good, you are now clean, it's safe for you to enter into society, it's safe for you to go into the temple. And so these men were not healed when they started to walk, but he said, go to the priests. And so it'd be easy to think like, why would I want to do that? I've done that so many times before. I have had so many opportunities where I thought this cleared up, where I thought I'd been healed, where I thought it went away, only for it to come back or only to be told, no, you are still unclean. In order for them to do this, they would have had faith to follow Jesus even when they didn't understand what the heck Jesus was doing. And here's where we can be challenged as well. If, if we are, as Christians are following Jesus and saying that he is Lord, which as, as Bishop Alex, our old rector, would say is like saying God is the boss of my life, then our obedience should not be conditional upon our understanding. It should not be conditional upon us agreeing necessarily with this thing that Jesus is asking. It's easy for us to only follow Jesus when it's convenient. It's easy for us to make a bargain, though we would never use that language. It's easy for us to think, man, if I follow Jesus, then he'll give me that happy family that I have wanted. 
if I follow Jesus and I follow his commands, then, then it'll help me at my work. It'll give me the career that I, I've wanted. I, I want to follow Jesus because it gives me justification for the change I seek in our culture, for the political victories that I want my tribe to win. Or, if I follow Jesus, he'll give me that elusive sense of peace that I so crave in this anxious world, and that is what I'm after. And all these things are not bad. They're good things, but they should not be the ground of our obedience for Jesus. Like, for one, that's, that's not how it works. It's not how it worked for Jesus. His career was going great until it wasn't, and all the crowds he had just turned on him and tried to kill him. Uh, his family at one point tried to seize him because they thought that he was crazy. And when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he did not have a sense of peace about what was going on. If these are the reasons why we followed Jesus, then there will come a time where what we want and what Jesus wants are going to be pit against one another. And we have to f figure out which one are we going to follow. And if we think about it this way, we'll see that if, if this is how we work in our heart of hearts, then perhaps what we want is not Jesus himself. When, if we will only follow Jesus when it makes sense, if we only follow Jesus when it works for us, then that asks bigger questions. There's a campus pastor and writer named Rachel Gilson, and here's the way that she puts it. What if the most important question is not, why am I asking this of you? So this is us, this is God speaking. The most important question is not, why is God asking this of you? But can you trust the one who's asking? Because if you are only willing to obey when you both understand and agree, maybe you are your own God. So if we look at these lepers, we, we, we see in how they respond, we they challenge us in our sense of obedience. And I think one thing to help imagine this is the movie Karate Kid. Some of the youth have been trying to get me to watch Cobra Kai. I still have not. But I have seen Karate Kid. And if you have seen it, you know that the main character, Daniel, he undergoes the tutelage of Mr. Miyagi. Because uh, he wants to learn karate. He wants to learn to defend himself. So he thinks he's going to learn all these sweet moves. And then Mr. Miyagi has him instead learn to paint the fence or to wax the car and do menial chores like that. And he's like, what the heck are you doing? This is not what I signed up for. This is not what I thought the program was. And eventually, Mr. Miyagi shows him how these things that he did not understand whatsoever actually were teaching him the, the basics of defensive moves in, in karate. And that's how it works in a way with Jesus. There might be times when Jesus is asking us to do things and we're like, I don't get it. This is weird, this doesn't make sense to me. I maybe even don't agree with it. But Jesus is a gentler and kinder teacher than Mr. Miyagi is. 
and he's not going to waste our time. And when we follow him, we won't be disappointed, even if we don't know what is going on. So the question for ourselves is, what are the areas in our lives where Jesus might be calling us to do something even though we don't understand why? Or even though we might not agree, what would it look like to trust him there? So Jesus challenges the divisions of our society and he challenges the limits of our understanding. But I think there's a reason why he does this. He, he, he doesn't challenge divisions just so we can hug it out and sing kumbaya, as great as that may be. He doesn't challenge the limits of our understanding just so we could become more self-disciplined people, though that's nice too. I think there's a larger purpose and we can get a sense of it when we look at the response of the one leper. Luke continues, and as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. So what happened here? This man was praising God with a loud voice. Where earlier he was crying out for mercy, he now cries out praises to God. And praising God, he falls down giving thanks. And for one, this is a demonstration of worship. You don't have to be a biblical scholar to know, hey, if you fall down at someone's feet, that's probably a posture of great humility, perhaps a posture of, of worship. But it doesn't just say he fell down at Jesus' feet. It says, that he, it says he gave him thanks. And of the 37 times that the word forgive thanks appears in the New Testament, every single time, the person who's being thanked is God. The implication is this man saw that Jesus was God. But there's something that's even more powerful than that, and that is, where is he worshiping Jesus? So at the beginning of this passage, he was standing afar. He stood at a distance, couldn't even come close to Jesus. But here he comes near and falls at his feet. Where he was before kept at a distance, now he is able to come near. And Jesus' comment may seem harsh at first. Uh, Jesus makes a special note that this man was a Samaritan, and then Jesus says, were not ten cleansed? Where were the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except for this foreigner? Foreigner is a strong term. It's pretty pejorative. And it almost sounds like he's belittling this man. But I, I don't think that's the case. One, because he just responds positively immediately after saying these things. I think he's speaking not to the man as much as to his disciples around him, to helping them catch a key point here. So this word for foreigner, this is the only time it appears in the, in the New Testament. But it appeared in Jesus' day much more often elsewhere. So in the late 1800s, there was an inscription that was found. It was part of the balustrade of the temple. It was like a warning sign on the outskirts of the temple. And we had known about stuff like this existed from the writings of Josephus, a historian who lived just after the time of Jesus. But this is the first time we actually found proof of 
this sign that Josephus was talking about, and this is what this sign said. It said, no foreigner is to enter within the balustrade round the temple and enclosure. Whoever is caught will be himself responsible for ensuing, for his ensuing death. No foreigner is allowed to enter within the temple lest they die. And this was a warning the people took seriously. If, if you read in Acts chapter 21, the people thought that Paul had brought a non-Jewish person into the temple and a riot starts. That's where Paul gets imprisoned and what would eventually take him to a Rome. They took this very seriously. No foreigner is allowed to come near the temple, the place where God was supposed to dwell. And yet here we see a Samaritan falling at the feet of Jesus, receiving not death, but grace. Jesus challenged the social divisions of his day, and he challenged the limits of our understanding because he wants to bring us to his feet. He wants to bring us to a place where we can fall down before him in his presence. He challenged those social divisions because those were things that would keep other people from the presence of God. And that is where he wants us to all end up. And so Jesus, though he was born not just a Jew, but the son of God, he cared about this so much that he was sent outside the gates of Jerusalem to die as an outsider. And along his way there, he asked why, God, how is it that you could do this? Why have you forsaken me? But he went anyways because he cared so much that people who were, would be on the outskirts could come and draw near to God. Please, please pray with me. God, we, we thank you that, that you are not content to leave us on the outside, but God, you want to draw us in, you want us to draw near. And that uh, though we might have been outsiders ourselves, though we might have thought ourselves better than others, you have humbled yourself that we might be a part of your, your family. So please show us the ways in which we um, can share that same invitation w with others and follow you even when we don't understand. Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen.